but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 79 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And this has been a seismic week in tennis. Rafa Nadal completed his second La Decima, winning for a 10th time in Barcelona to go along with his 10th win in Monte Carlo last week. And then we had the not-so-small business of Maria Sharapova returning to tennis. Was that this week? You damn well know it was this I week. I think I missed it. You did your very best to miss it. <laughs> I sure did. It wasn't until an hour ago that you even sat down to listen and watch those Sharapova interviews, those press conferences. Yeah, I mean, who can be bothered, really? Damn near everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed, actually. As far as Maria goes, we've got a special guest on the show this week, Rene Denfeld. He was on site in Stuttgart, and he's going to be reporting about what exactly went down in Germany this week with Maria's comeback. We're going to get started with a few etc. The first being Serena's response to Elena Stasi. At the start of the week, Serena issued a statement lambasting Nastasi for his racist comments and his sexist comments during Fed Cup the week before. Yeah, I wasn't sure if she was going to just remain silent on the issue and just let it blow over, or she was going to be compelled to say something. And the fact that he was joking about her unborn child probably struck a nerve. And uh, she released this thing on Instagram, just making it very, very clear that this is racist, that it's offensive. She said, I have said it once and I'll say it again. This world has come so far, but yet we have so much further to go. Yes, we have broken down so many barriers. However, there are a plethora more to go. This or anything else will not stop me from pouring love, light, and positivity into everything that I do. I will continue to take a lead and stand up for what's right. The taking a lead part there is what struck me most, because Serena is firmly entrenched and embracing of her role as the forefront voice in women's tennis and women's sport, really. Yeah. I mean, she has suffered racial abuse throughout her career, and it, it continues, and it continues to come from members of the tennis community, and in some cases, exalted members of the tennis community. So I think that, you know, she is aligned with the ITF. She said it in the, in the statement that she's in support of their investigation and whatever action they decide to take. But I think myself and a lot of other people are like, what investigation is necessary here? There was no action taken after the offensive comments about Serena, and he was allowed to go ham in front of all those people in Romania on the on the court. There are no so, receipts to collect. The receipts are all on display. Mm, are so, they just waiting for this to blow over a little bit so that he can reappear a few months down the road and have nobody well, blink an eye? That would be typical of tennis, right? But a more typical of tennis would be one of the major networks giving him a job after this. <laughs> Kimiko Data is back. She is 46 years old coming back from double knee surgery, and will be playing in Gifu this week, an $80,000 tournament, site of her original comeback 
way back in what was it 2008 2008 i think yeah this and is uh what her third comeback mm-hmm. she played an exhibition a few weeks ago i think against kurumi nara and i watched some of the highlights of that just the other day and nothing about her strokes make any sense to me <laughs> in this day and age mm-hmm. but like she did before she's finding a way Right. I mean, her game was un- unorthodox even in the 90s, mm-hmm. right? So it it probably just looks like from another planet at, at this point in time. More power to her, and I am fully invested in this comeback. We also learned this week that Roger Federer has announced that he is definitely going to play Roland Garros. He has withdrawn from all the lead-up tournaments, but he will be on site in Paris. I'm totally not surprised by that. I think... Regardless of how the rest of the field had been looking, I think he would have played anyway. That's just my opinion. But he must be looking at the rest of the men's game right now and thinking, hmm, you know, Andy's playing okay. He's he's playing good or he's playing good tennis in spurts, at least in the last week. Novak is MIA at the moment. And Yelena's pregnant again. That was just right, confirmed. Right. So I think if you're Roger Federer, you have to look at the men's game and say, oh, maybe I should go to Paris and just see what happens. And despite Rafa looking like a runaway train on clay right now, he hasn't been playing the really top players, and Federer must be hanging his hat on, well, if I have to play Rafa in the back end of that tournament, like maybe I'll have better fortunes this time right. because I've kind of turned this thing around with Rafa. Mm-hmm. Or maybe at least, f- you know, for once I have a mental edge. Even if it's on clay, I have more of an edge than probably I ever have. And showing up playing Rafa at Roland Garros sight unseen all season on clay with the only recent history of them being the last two final wins for Federer. That's a men- yeah, that is a mental, mental right. edge for him. Or I should say that could be taken as a mental edge for Federer, if we were Federer. <laughs> right. We normally do things we like and things we dislike at the end of the episode. We're going to do it fairly upfront now. And a big thing we like, and something that struck me most, probably more than anything else in tennis this week, was Karen Kachanov's thighs. More than anything yeah, in tennis, that's I what struck you. flabbergasted watching him play <laughs> tennis. He's He's only 20, right? Very young. Right. I think kudos, you know, he must be doing squats. I guess I hadn't seen him play much tennis, and so I was... I just thought he was a much more gangly, wiry, tall thing, <laughs> but he certainly is not. I don't know. I saw his cute bro photo with Dominic Team, and I was like, okay, okay, I'm here for it. And what I appreciate most about his game is that he's not your typical tall dude, boom-boom tennis mm-hmm. kind of player. He plays with a lot of spin. There's a lot of ground stroke rallies. It's it's fun. And things we dislike. We usually don't have trouble finding things we dislike, right? Well, we we rearranged the order of the things we like and dislike mainly to set up the next segment because <laughs> it's squarely Maria's dismissive responses in press. Yeah. So as you mentioned a few minutes ago, I had been dragging my feet and I didn't really watch Maria's pressers until today. Of course, I had heard a lot about it. I sort of heard all the choice quotes, but seeing it is just a whole other thing, right? So Maria, I feel it was interesting because there were some answers that were dismissive and some 
Well, probably most of the press conferences were professional, articulate. Funny, engaging. Right, right. She showed some personality, but there were some answers that just stuck out and just left a bad taste in my mouth because it reminded me of this press tour of victimhood, right? When she said, someone asked her if she was angry about this whole episode, this whole 15-month ban, basically the trashing of her name in the international sports media. And she said, no, I'm not angry. I'm not an angry or bitter person. And that, to me, has all the credibility of Phaedra Parks. <laughs> that's, an, that's another thing. We might have to do a show about that, by the way. Well, her comeuppance is coming. In a big way. But regarding the topic at hand, I think it, it's hard for me to sit there and believe that she has no resentment or no bitterness. Because this entire rollout campaign of hers was about blaming the ITF, blaming everyone but herself, casting blame on her own team, even Max Eisenbud, the loyalist of loyal agents. And from that first press conference when she's quote-unquote took responsibility, it's been a process of shirking responsibility since then. So you struggled with the authenticity of it all? I did. And I mean, for me, that's par for the course with Maria. What did you expect her to say in some of those instances? Well, that's a good point. That's a good question. I, I don't expect someone to sit there and say, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm bitter. I, that would never happen with Maria. I don't know. I, you don't go to a Maria Sharapova press conference for honesty. And I don't mean that in a, in a bitchy way. You just you don't go for a deep dive. My thing with this, this initial press conference is you've had 15 months to prepare for it. You should have no surprises. I mean, what could have been a surprise in terms of a question? Like the ones that that she took issue with, those are fairly reasonable questions. Right. And it was a, a missed opportunity of sorts to address them head on. Maybe put yourself out there and be uncomfortable in having to, you know, own up to a few things. But then, you know, that again could be put to rest and move on a little bit. Mm -hmm. Instead, it was like, I'm not talking about that. Next question. And then the one that I really loved and I talked about it a little bit with Renee later on, was when she was asked about meldonium and the fact that it was for a heart condition or whatever, and has she since found an alternative medicine to make up for the fact that she can't take this anymore? Mm -hmm. And her response was, that's between me, the WTA, and my orthopedic doctor. Uh, you're what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're orthopedist? <laughs> But I think everybody's alarm bells went off like, what? What? Yeah, and I don't know if that was just a slip, of, like a slip of the tongue or something. I think she... It wasn't. She confirmed it in mm. subsequent oh, press conferences. Okay. Yeah. She was clearly annoyed by the question. And in, in most cases, I would say that stuff is not our business. A, a player's medical, mm -hmm. like personal medical details, right? It's not our business. But... She has made it our business because this is the story she told us. I'm taking meldonium. It was a legitimate medical need. A doctor wrote me the prescription. And this is why. I have a family history. Um, I might be, you know, I could be pre-diabetic someday. Mm -hmm. And I, when you have important matches coming up and extra heart palpitations, you take a few extra. Right. And see, to me, this is where the story breaks down. 
And we've said before, Maria's guilt or innocence, neither of those are unequivocal to me. I don't think either of those are eminently clear. I don't care that she was taking something for maybe a bogus reason that was legal. Like, the legality of these things is so murky and so subjective that that's of zero relevance to me, pretty much. Because up until January 1st... Who cares if you have a bullshit story about why you're taking something? Yeah. Because it was perfectly legal. But to be and clear... And if she had read that email, we would never have known. Exactly. But I want to make it clear that I think that the medical story is bullshit. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say that she's a dope or she's a cheater. But I'm saying that the medical story is clearly bullshit. Because we've also said that to then make the, make the leap from... So much of what's gone before with this whole story and the minutia of proving guilt or innocence and reading all the documents and parsing through the details, they're of so little interest to me at this point because big picture, I don't think it was that big of a deal. Mm. What exactly happened? Right. Well, it's it's not the crime, it's the cover-up, right? That's what that's <laughs> where I'm at right now. And mm-hmm. that's what made the press conferences so interesting to me and made it a must-watch. Right. I think in a lot of cases, reporters are taking words from her mouth and framing a question in that way. So they're taking facts that we know about the case and asking relevant questions. Some of them you can construe as invasive, fine, or aggressive especially with certain members of the British press, who she obviously has a little, some trouble with. Mm -hmm. But, for example, someone asked point blank, do you agree with Max Eisenbud that Radwanska and Wozniacki are journeyman players? Dodged the question 100%. Said, I don't control my manager's words. He's been watching everybody's comments over the last 15 months, and he's entitled to his own opinion. I don't control his opinion. But she does control whether she pays him. Yes. And so to me, that response is is pretty clear that there was justification in what he said. He's been watching basically the shit that people have talked about me over the past 15 months, and he's formed an opinion. A less charitable view, my view, is that that's a very passive-aggressive way of saying, hell yes, I agree with him. But you could just as easily say that was uh, a way to distance herself from his comments, which is probably just as valid. But I'm predisposed to interpret it in a certain way. And here's where I want to say my my the opinion that I've built of Sharapova over the past, what, 13, 14 years, certainly goes into how I interpret this whole Meldonium fiasco, right? And I think a lot of people need to be a little more honest about that. If you don't like Maria, you're going to be harder on her. Yes. And I, I have been. Yes. I have been. The thing that I took away from that response about Eisenbud was that Max and Maria must have a very close relationship. And we we touched on it a little bit on the previous episode where getting into the Racket Mag article about Maria, where it was talked about that even back in 2000, before she was a known person, Eisenbud was her agent. So like from her mid-teen years, this person has been... I imagine somewhat of a father figure, a guiding person in her career or mm-hmm. life. Right. He survived the the start, the mid, and now the back end of her career. She, he's been there the entire time. Right. I mean, he's entrenched. And that kind of response where you say the person's entitled to their opinion, whatever, blah, 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 no matter how 
what we think heinous and egregious it is. That's the type of defense you say for your kin. Mm-hmm. Your that's family, a, a really when your point. father says something real bad, you're like, well, I can't control what Tio Tony says or mm. what Richard says. Yeah, that's a really good point. Or my sister or my brother. Like, these are people that you're not gonna, you're not gonna cut ties with them. They're there. So, like, you have to defend them at all costs mm. to an extent. It's deferential. It is. And so it's possible that Maria might not co-sign those comments because you think that he's her attack dog and that she is sanctioning that, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that's one idea. But it's also that that's just the way it is. That's Max. And mm-hmm. that's that's like an, a, a contrary opinion. I'm not going to say that that's what it is, but that, mm-hmm. that's just what struck me about the response. Still think it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I I would say that her responses to the questions about whether she deserves wild cards, those responses were, I don't know what the adjective I want to use is, I think they were reasonable responses. Because in her position, somebody gives you a wild card, and she's saying, well, you know, a tournament director wants me to come and play. Am I going to say no? And so, of course... Uh, <laughs> a martyr could say, "No, I'd like to pay, mm-hmm. play qualifiers," and I don't. I don't know if a professional player would do that. Maybe there are people who would. You can correct us if we're wrong, but I think this is one part of the story that we've been very consistent on the entire time. On Maria's response to the wild cards, like if they're coming, you're going to take them, right? Our focus has been on like what are these tournaments doing, and what are the reasons why they're circumventing mm-hmm. what we think are the you know the more moralistic ways about going going about this business yeah and from her perspective i talked to caitlin thompson about this last week maria is intent on making herself a brand she said she's always wanted to own her own business she is a capitalist at heart so when one of your sponsors porsche invites you to play the stuttgart tournament because clear i mean that's a lot of what went into that decision, I'm sure. She's going to say yes. She she feels that they want her to play. It's her job to come, win matches, and do her best. That's her job. And she's played on the biggest stages, under the biggest lights. This is not a situation that would make her shy away from the spotlight. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. she'd be afraid of having to face the music under the big lights, you know? No. Maria debuted well against Vinci, her serve was probably the most remarkable aspect of her game because it seemed much improved. She got through Vinci, then Makarova, her countrywoman, then Kantavite, and then ran into Mladenovic in the semifinals. And I I went into that thinking Mladenovic has a chance because she's been playing really well this year. And Mladenovic is... <laughs> how, how do I put this? Messy as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, but for some reason I had this feeling that she was she really wanted to back it up. Isn't it more that you give somebody an extra chance in a situation where there is the potential to back up your your shit talking? Like I feel like that's always an extra motivating factor for folks. Mm. But it, I mean, it could have also been a big motivator for Maria to yeah. to you know talk shit, get hit. <laughs> <laughs> so for me watching it. I think it's always gratifying when someone who talks shit backs it up. Because you are such a shit talker yourself? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a aspirational. Mm. <laughs> that, that's some kiki goals for you right there. <laughs> right. I mean, both women played a great match. Maria, 
I think uh, maybe the four matches in a row caught up to her. Fabulous result for both women, really. Kiki got the win, but Maria has to be happy with play- with making the semifinals. Serving that well, like you said, it's a it's a win-win. Like, yes, she could have won the tournament, but I'm sure she'd have taken this result at the start of the week. And then Mladenovic continues her great start to 2017. It's not even just a start anymore. It's been a really good season mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, She's been playing like a top 10 player. And while she wasn't able to beat Zygmunt in the final, who has on clay this really, season? Who wants to face her on clay? Literally no one. It was, uh, I'm sure Kiki herself is quite pleased. Which takes us to Zygmunt. Man. So she did herself one better. She reached the final in Stuttgart last year, lost to Kerber. This year she reached the final again. And this was really a final that no one predicted. No. And also, how often do we see when a player has a big time result the year before and they come back the next year and whether it's the pressure of defending those points or the added stature at that tournament, the extra spotlight, they're just not able to to replicate. Mm -hmm. And she went and did this on home soil. Right. Uh, Clearly she's comfortable in that situation. It gives her a lot of energy. And uh, since, I mean, since she won a clay title last summer, we haven't really heard a lot from her. Really? She She made the semis, I believe in Charleston. Even that feels like a lifetime ago to me at this point. And, uh, and now winning in Stuttgart. The, Play I mean, is her forte. Maria said it in press. This is, this is one of the most prestigious women's tournaments of the year outside the slams, I think. It's a very small draw, and you get really quality players here. You said Zygmunt Mladenovic in the final was totally unpredicted. But that had to do with how many of the top seeds just flew by the uh, wayside. I mean, just, like, dissipated. <laughs> Radwanska was out early. Super early. There was no chance of her facing Sharapova, even though there was some chatter about it earlier. They were scheduled to play in Maria's second match if, of course, Maria got past Vinci and Radvanska won her opening match as well, and that didn't happen. Mm. And that would have been the first, you know, fireworks matchup because of the stuff that Aga said about Maria as well, too, right? And that that didn't happen. Caroline was out. Muguruza went out. Kerber lost her first match. She lost to... Mladenovic, in straight sets. Kuznetsova lost early to Zygmunt. And then <laughs> Zygmunt beat Halep as well in the semifinals. Right. Uh, Kanta lost to Savastova. Yeah, I think you were looking at Simona to make some noise this week. And I still, I think she still can on clay. She's one of the best there is on well, clay. Well, she made noise. She did. She, she reached the, the semis, semifinals. And she lost to a player who is absolutely on fire in in, in a close match, really. She lost to the eventual champion, so I guess no shame in that. Mm. But I think what you're more referring to is I've privately, and I guess now publicly, will pick Simona Halep to win the French Open. Are you still going there? I'm still going there. Because I can't see any of the other top players being just go-to picks at this point. And from a narrative perspective, which we try to avoid, but (laughs) Simona coming into her own and winning finally... It would make sense at this point on her favorite surface. She said this week that she loves clay, mm-hmm. loves it. She moves very well on clay. She's one of the best movers on clay in tennis. And that's that's who I look forward to holding the trophy at the end of the French Open. I, I would love to see that. And I think 
There you, was a time when you were a huge Simona fan. Yes. Simona came close to winning that major against Sharapova. And she's got to be looking back and saying, I can do this again. You have this iPad on-court coaching thing here. <laughs> on yeah. our agenda. Yeah. It, I, there was some discussion about it between some tennis luminaries on Twitter over the weekend. And this is a new technology that the WTA is trying out as part of their on-court coaching, uh, providing these tablets for people to, you know, for coaches to show fairly detailed analytics to the players during coaching breaks. And some people were like, ugh. And honestly, at first I was like, really, though? Uh, That's not how you presented it to me. You were like, this is... This, yeah, I don't like that's this. what I'm saying. Like, really, though? Why? Oh, okay. I thought you were yeah. saying, really, though, it's not that big oh, of a deal. Oh, no, no. Because my first reaction was to be like, this is kind of gross. Like, I, I just don't like it. And I think it stems from the fact that I don't like on-court coaching at all, really. But I can see if on-court coaching is going to be a thing, why not make it productive? I, I do see that side of it. Also, everybody has a smartphone. The coach could be sitting in the stands on the Pro Tennis Live app, having those stats in his head to relate to the player right. right then and there. I mean, some players have, you know, been texting during matches. I just don't think it's a big deal. Also, maybe I just don't have it in me to be bothered about something like this. <laughs> I, I There's maintain, just way too much going on. I maintain that Encore coaching needs to go. But if, if you're going to allow coaching, why not allow the iPad? What's the difference? Steve Simon reprimanded Max Eisenbud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this so they say. I read uh, the headline and I clicked on it and I was like, "And then you was that a reprimand?" Then you read what was actually said, yeah, right? Like, was that a reprimand? It was. It was a leading question. It was like forced out of him. Someone asked, "Did you talk to Max? Da, da, da. Did you reprimand him?" And basically, it was like, "Yes," <laughs> like or like I had words with him. Okay, like okay, sure, sure, Jan. <laughs> like, I really don't think there was any reprimanding going on. That brings us to the end of our WTA segment. Do you want to play the interview now? Sure. Before we head into the yeah. ATP stuff? Okay. So here's Rene Denfeld, GIF or GIF wizard. He is very busy at the moment, traveling all over Europe to tennis <laughs> this summer, this spring, I should say. He was kind enough to chat with me about Stuttgart and Maria's return and some of the ins and outs of what happened on site, and the various dynamics involved in in hosting this kind of return, and his general insights into what it was like to be on site in Stuttgart. Good evening. Hello, Renee. Welcome to the Body Serve. How's it going? I'm doing well. Where in the world are you right now? I am in Salzburg, Austria, at the moment, for just one night. Just one night? <laughs> yes, just one night. <laughs> Yeah, I'm here for work. I'm I'm here for work tomorrow. And you've just come from Stuttgart. Yeah, yeah. I've done I've done Fed Cup starting on uh, on Friday last week. I got to Stuttgart on Friday the was the twentieth or twenty first of, of of April. And then I stayed stayed in Stuttgart until um, this morning. And then I drove from Stuttgart over to Salzburg through the rain, through the disgusting weather in Germany and in Europe at the beginning of May. And now I've got now now I got here got a bit of work to do tomorrow and then i'm driving back home then it's off to madrid so so in other words busy busy but all good in other words you're one of the busiest men in tennis right now you're the dominic team of tennis reporters gosh i like i i kind of i kind of for, for a second i was like 
generally joking. I was like, yeah, my schedule is looking busier than Dominic's. And then he, he added Barcelona, and I was like, oh, no, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so why we really wanted to have you on yeah. the show, one, it's long overdue. We're big fans of your work. Uh, but also, you. you were on site for ground zero of the Sharapova return in Stuttgart. It was on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> and this wasn't the first time that you've been to Stuttgart, obviously. You've been there a few years now. I think you said this was your fourth time? This was my fourth time. Like, I've been there before a couple of times, obviously, when, like, in, in, since 2006, 2007, when it was still on the old side. Uh, in Filderstadt, when it was still a carpet indoor tournament in autumn. Uh-huh. And then with the redesign of the roadmap, it got moved into, into April and they turned it into a clay court indoors event. And I've been there as media since 2015. So okay. this is my third year as media in Stuttgart. Yeah. So given that you've been there as press before, how would you compare the feeling leading up to the start of the tournament, the official start of the tournament? knowing what was to come as opposed to other years i think it was i think it was we we all sort of expected like the the sort of the core group that's been there for the past few years that i've shared a table with um we've all we all sort of expected it to be markedly different and to be uh, slightly more uh, more frequented by international media obviously and um i didn't really have a clear idea like as with regards to how many people would be there in terms of just just media that would be accredited or media that are accredited and stay there for the entire week because obviously the it differs often people just go for two or three days because they've got other appointments throughout the week so like if someone says oh we've got 140 accredited uh, um, people with media credentials it's very unlikely that you see all 140 in one day i can very much tell you that on the wednesday of stuttgart um it was definitely everyone who had an accreditation was pretty much there so um yeah in the lead up to the tournament i felt that you you had an idea that it was pretty much everyone who is currently active in the top 10 and playing would be there so that's Almost everyone, not except for um, Serena, who's, as I said, not really active <laughs> for, 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 the, for the foreseeable future anyway, and Maria Sharapova making her, her comeback. And it's been, it's fair to say, it's been the topic that's been dominating headlines in advance. Um, for Fed Cup, they're using the same media center as for the Porsche Tennis Grand Prix. So the, when I walked in on the Friday, you, you could tell there were a lot more tables in there. It was all a little bit cozier and a little bit more. We were all sitting a little closer together as opposed to the previous years. But in terms of the way that the tournament was welcoming to the media or to the, to photographers and writers and everyone, it did not really make any difference at all, I felt. And, um, but you could tell that there was a, a significant and a very pronounced increase in terms of in- interest um, okay. for, for the 40th anniversary of the tournament. Yeah. One of the controversies, the, the many moving parts of the Sharapova return was the fact that she was given a Wednesday start well, well, well in advance, right? And so was it a situation where people were trying to figure out her whereabouts in the lead up to Wednesday? And when was her actual first sighting on the grounds? So, yeah, people were trying to figure out where she was, where she was training or where she was preparing. I think, um, Marisha Rafa has been quite, um, has not been really, um, hiding in terms of like 
oh, no one knows when I'm getting to Germany or no one knows when I'm going to start training somewhere in the vicinity of, of Stuttgart or what I'm going to do in the, in the next couple of weeks or in the next couple of days even. And it was clear that she was like arriving on the Friday or something. And I think uh, the time Stu Fraser uh, sort of broke it or, or had the first couple of pictures and a, and, and a story on her practicing at a local club about 10 minutes away from from the tournament side up until the Wednesday and um yeah she did not she didn't make an arrival on site at the Porsche Arena at the tournament before the Wednesday when she was eligible to step back onto uh onto ground essentially yeah was that that same practice that you tweeted about the first practice on that Wednesday morning yeah, okay. yeah that was that Wednesday morning um at 9 15, I think it was 9.13 when she stepped on court, and that was um, one of the busiest practices at 9.15 or at 9.13 I've seen in, in Stuttgart ever. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was a, to me, at least, at least to me, it was that way that it, I was, I was happy when the, when the Wednesday finally occurred because on the Monday, for example, they did not have any main draw matches because in the evening they decided to do like a big, a big show in, uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the tournament. So you had no main draw match. You had, we had a, pre- a press conference with, um, Robert Da Vinci. So the media had something in order to prepare for the Wednesday and to get the ball rolling, I suppose, for the Vinci Sharapova match on, on Wednesday. And there was this, to me at least, it felt like this weird sort of tension with a big elephant in the room, but it wasn't really there yet. So it was, it was definitely a very different, a, a different vibe. Not a bad vibe, not a good vibe, just a very different vibe compared to, yeah, many other Mondays or Tuesdays at normal at a, at a regular event i suppose and also the same goes to the draw ceremony which was held in the kids village on um on the saturday afternoon where a couple of us just stood there also where went there to watch the draw ceremony and it was one of the more nerve-wracking draw ceremonies i've been i've been a part of because every like with every person that would essentially get drawn or with every player that would essentially get drawn for example Mladenovic drew Mirjana Lucic Baroni in the first in the first round, and in a very sneaky move, the person reading out the names said me, and all of us <laughs> thought, "Oh, here we go, here we go." <laughs> and it turned out Mirjana Lucic Baroni. We're like, "Oh, God, come on, you can't, you cannot do that to people watching on." But um, especially yeah, with the was, potential for Kiki to be playing Maria right off the bat, given right off the bat would have been, given. The things that have been that that have been said in the past. A I few suppose, choice yeah. words. <laughs> yeah, it, it that would have that would have really thrown the cat cat amongst the pigeons. But um, as it turned out, yeah, the first round was against Roberta Vinci, and we got the entire draw. And you got a. I was exhausted after the draw. I just felt drained because it was just like an adrenaline rush for about fifteen or twenty minutes. Where I was like, this was a lot to take in because it's it, it, like as much as it was about. Sharapova. It was also for me about looking. Okay, where are the chips gonna fall for for Kerber or for 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 Siegemund eventually? Because yeah, I'm writing I'm writing for a German website. Uh-huh. So that's kind of what what I key in on as well. And um, but yeah, it was it was interesting and that sort of the tension that was not the tension but the once the framework was set in terms of the draw. It kept being very, very interesting up and right up until the Wednesday, until 
the first practice, the match, when you got an impression, okay, how is Sharapova playing? Um, what is she going to say in press? I mean, the presses were streamed. And so I think a lot of you and a lot of your listeners obviously got a good impression of how Maria sort of handled this entire, this entire day and, and the questions of the media. Yeah, because there was no template for this, right? Take us back to that first practice. I know you had done a little, little piece, a written piece talking about your first impressions of what her level of play was. You also put out a few videos showing her hitting for that first time. It seemed that you were, for the most part, impressed with what you saw, and that it was, as it turned out, an omen for how well she'd play the rest of the week. Yeah, I thought I thought she looked in pretty good shape from the get go. I was I was I just because the first thing look with with practice, I always feel like it's it's a bit bit of a tough one to just to just gauge someone's level. And you're either somewhat impressed or you're somewhat unimpressed. I found myself pretty quickly on this somewhat impressed side of things because I felt she looked in terms of like her shape and her physicality. She looked very, very much on point. I felt like maybe she had put on uh, a kilogram or two of muscles here or there and looked very fit. I was impressed like in the first, first practice. I was really impressed by the serve because I thought she was serving pretty well, had altered the surface motion maybe a little with a bit more fluidity in the last part of the swing bolt us a little bit lower because i always felt that was one of the major hitches in her serve in that her bolters were so high that she stopped the motion um sort of halfway through the swing and by maybe lowering the bolters she forced she forced herself to sort of go through the motion a bit more with a bit more fluidity and um that's the thing i was most impressed with was the fact that she looked to be serving pretty well, and um, interestingly, interestingly enough, I think that was one of the main takeaways of her first four matches, is that she she served pretty damn good and served at about 75% or something like that, mixed up her spots a little bit more. Yeah, I thought I thought she played pretty well. She looked pretty good in the first practice, but look, I mean, it's a, it's a first practice that you see of someone who has not been playing a match in 15 months, so it's it's obviously difficult to say how that's going to translate into a match, even if mm-hmm. she obviously hasn't been out with an injury. It's not like she's been, she's had another shoulder surgery or something. She's been out on a ban for 15 months and she was pretty much healthy. But there's a good point to be made that those 15 months might have done her a world of good in hindsight because she has been running around in the past two or three years with here, with issues here, issues there, or had to sit out a couple of months before um, the end of 2015. So, who knows how much this is going to maybe even benefit her in long uh, in the long term. Those press conferences, so much, so much gold <laughs> throughout the week. And you tweeted, this would have been prior to the main first press conference, that there are a hell of a lot of takes from all sorts of directions on what Sharapova should, shouldn't be asked in press today. Mm. Can you give us a little bit of insight into what were some of the things that you were uh, referring to is it more stuff you were seeing online stuff you were hearing in the press room what was the general gauge it was, more, it was more stuff i was seeing online basically what people just i just saw conversations or people actually like asking me like you should ask her this or that or you should ask her this or that or maybe you'd go there or maybe you don't want to ask this or you should ask this i, I just thought it was interesting i think the level of what people expect to be asked and what pe- what you realistically are going to get as an answer, I think is, is, it's interesting how that sort of, how 
that balance I I found quite interesting because some some said oh you need to go full on I would go all in on the entire Muldonium case and on everything that happened in the past 15 months. And others were like, well, it should be more about, um, how she played in that match, how this, how this all played out. And to be perfectly fair, I thought, I found it very unlikely in, in advance that she was going to fall to any pandering or to any bait that anyone was going to lay out in terms of the previous 15 months and the, situation leading up to the eventual 15-month suspension. So I found it quite unlikely to, that she was going to give away much with regards to that. And um, I kind of tried to maybe even maybe match, like I had two or three questions in the subsequent pressers, like, so how do you think these 15 months are maybe going to turn a disadvantage into an advantage and these sort of things? Um, and yes, there was... I, I talked to a German colleague of mine in an English podcast about this the other day, and there was a there was a lot to unpack in 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 this, and a lot of things were said. I felt without really being said, so it was interesting. Uh huh. And you talked about what people were you were seeing on Twitter. Were there conversations mm. about this happening in the press room leading up to it? Were or were people pretty tight lipped as to how they themselves were going to participate in this press conference? Well, look, I think. I think you know how people have covered, how pe- individual people have covered this entire story and the lead up to it. Like, for example, that maybe the, 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 the British press has been very invested in this matter. It's, uh, and it was, I, I thought it was going to be fairly clear that a couple of the, of, of the Brits were going to be quite straightforward in terms of the actual things surrounding the entire 15 month suspension. The details of that, maybe. So I thought that was might be the angle that some were going to tackle. But I, like, I wasn't going to go up to anyone and go, "Hey, so what do you think you're going to ask her?" Because I'm like, okay, this is I'm going to do my work in a way, and you're going to do your work. So this is, but like, I think most people, even those who weren't in the media center or who weren't there for the press conference, had a fairly good idea in terms of. That some people were maybe more inclined to ask questions with regards to her um, to her ban, and that others maybe weren't that inclined to go uh, deeper into that debate. Why do you think the British press, as you say, have been more invested in asking these types of questions? I, from being in Charleston and talking to folks over the last year or so, it seems like ugh, the British tennis establishment is trying to position themselves as the the moral center to an extent. Um, yeah, and I mean, there, there, there's also been, I've, I've seen the term with regards to the entire wildcard debate, obviously, that's going to continue to dominate conversations up until May 16th, I believe, mm-hmm. the Tuesday of Rome, and maybe even beyond that with, with regards to Wimbledon, because if Sharapova doesn't get to the necessary points after Rome, then there's still going to be the debate, is she going to get a wildcard into the main draw or is she going to have to play qualifying in Roehampton? So I think this like one of the points where they're very invested. And um, as I said, there's been there's been this um, sort of point or statement. Yeah, st- not statement, but I've seen the term more that Wimbledon is something like the moral guardian of, of tennis being bandied about on Twitter and conversations and these things where, where I think maybe there's a different sort of angle that seems more important to to some media outlets or to some countries 
than two others? Or they're more keen on pressing on the matter? Because I, I think Brits generally view themselves as a country that is quite firm with regards to violations of all sorts of doping, anti-doping rules. Okay. That's at least that's at least the impression I do get. But it is, um, yeah, it's also in a way, it's the story that that it is a story that continues to stir the debate and a story that also in a way sells. So I think that's also part of of why maybe the maybe why maybe the British press is more involved with with this than um, maybe some maybe the corps of other countries. And also because the British press cup is fairly, it's a fairly, um, in terms of numbers, it is one of the, one of the bigger press corps in, yeah. in, in, in tennis journalism. I get the impression too that the Brits have a lot more established, uh, financially backed press people covering tennis than say other countries. And so from my limited experience in, in covering tennis, there's, there's only so, so far that you're going to go in some of these press conferences because you're footing your own bill <laughs> to cover these yes. uh, these events. And so there's a, a different expectation on what you are expected to cover as a so-called serious journalist. Right. Yeah, I think I think that definitely that makes some a certain difference. There are more, maybe more papers backing writers to attend tournaments in the UK as opposed to maybe in Germany. In Germany, like if I look back, obviously we don't have, we haven't had like a case there was a lot of German media in, in Stuttgart that's like clear as water. But if you look at, for example, at Madrid, Rome, I remember being the one of the only, if not the only German, they had German writer in the in the press room in Rome last year. And we had a world number two, Angelique Kerber, being a second seed. I mean, Kerber's not done much in, in on clay in the past year or two. But there were there wasn't really anyone from a German newspaper, for example, in Rome, as opposed to the British uh, press was very, yeah, they were strongly represented, I suppose. You talked earlier about Maria only giving so much that you expected that she wasn't going to engage or bite with some of these questions. And there's that expectation, but there's also some of the curt, short, dismissive responses that we got as well. <laughs> and then there was also the whole business of the orthopedic doctor which I think kind of threw a lot of people by surprise when she was asked, when she was asked about, you know, while you were taking this heart medication before, have you found a different medication to substitute since? And she said, well, it's between what did she, what did she say? Me, the WT and my orthopedic do doctor. That is, yes, that is pretty much what she said. Is exactly. And I had, I was listening back to that one, to that specific quote at least two times, I believe before I wrote down orthopedic and because I, thinking i was thinking because obviously with with me not being a native english speaker it's, it's just like usually i get the, I, I get the hang of things very easily and i uh -huh. not i'm not at a conversational level where i'm like ooh, what does that mean but there's just some things where you're like where, you, where you're stumped for a second and you're like was that was what was being said or am i just like totally misunderstanding something here so i was like okay that was the quote and i wrote it down and i immediately got like responses from people like orthopedic Orth what what do you mean orthopedic and i was like <laughs> oh, her? i was like what her words not mine well i can tell so, you i'm a a native english speaker and i too went and made sure that i got the entirety of that definition <laughs> because just something didn't it just felt off yeah well i ended up going back because i, I was pretty sure up until that point 
I knew what orthopedic meant. And then I went and Googled orthopedic just to make sure I knew what I knew. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> in the end, in the end, I looked it up and I was like, yeah, that's what I thought it meant. So. Did that response um, get a lot of people talking in the press? Because she was widely roasted on Twitter, but were people, you know, laughing about it themselves within the press room? I don't think it was laughing. It was more like checking with each other. I was like, you heard that as well. Yeah. You? Yeah. Okay. Not just me. Okay. <laughs> and I think many of us, like, try to, to, to draw our own conclusions from it and to just think and... I was like, okay, if it's, it's like, it's also muscles and joints is also something that falls into the, maybe a bit more on the, on, on the, on the outer fringe of, um, of something that orthopedic doctors are doing. And the heart is a muscle and also <laughs> sort of connected to joints. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's that. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of where I went with it. And she was asked in, in a, in a, in a subsequent press conference whether, whether that, was whether it is indeed an orthopedic doctor and she confirmed it. So, well, she didn't delve into any further details when it came to that. So putting a wrap on this whole Maria business for Stuttgart, during, I guess, maybe after her first match, I saw people tweeting that she's one of the odds-on favorites to win Roland Garros. And she's not even guaranteed to be playing at this point, which just seems absolutely mind-blowing that this is where we are right now in such a short period of time. Yeah, I think I'm, 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 I'm totally with you there. It's something I'm trying to sort of comprehend and, and wrap my, wrap my head around. Something I actually asked her. I was like, do you know that you've played three matches here and no one even knows if you're going to play the French and yet bookmakers have got you as the, as the favorite to win it. And she was like, Oh, really? I was like, yeah, sorta. And I, it's interesting. I think I, I'm not sure how much of a knee jerk reaction it is in the end because I do think she played well. Considering it's the first tournament without any match play in the previous 15 months, I think the loss to Mladenovic in the end is something that can be put down to the fact that she hasn't played tournaments in the past 15 months. Uh-huh. Because I felt that she was like the decision making and maybe the sort of freshness or mental freshness in the end of the, of that match sort of that's what, that's what cost her the match partially. I suppose not completely partially also because Nadanovic started backing herself and her second serve much better as the match progressed. But overall, I think in terms of just what she saw in terms of serves, forehands, backhands and what she did on court, it was pretty good. It was, it, she didn't, she didn't run into anyone like, I suppose, a well, like she didn't have the, she didn't have the path that Sigmund had put it that way. She yeah, I think that's a very I think that's a very fair summary. She didn't have the path that Siegmund had and had to get past three top ten players and one player who's playing like a top ten player this year. But overall she got three she got past three opponents who throw a fairly different game at her and she got past them in fairly convincing fashion, barely dropping her serve. So I think yeah. I think she, she had a good, like, semifinals is a reasonable, is a pretty good first tournament for her. And I think she was pretty, she seemed pretty much happy and at ease with the fact that she made a semifinal in her first tournament back. So Sigamund is your champion. She beats Mladenovic in the, in the final. 
Zygmunt, as you mentioned, beating three top 10 players, Kuznetsova, Pliskova, and Halep. And then also Mladenovic, who herself had a pretty tough run of it. She had Lucic Baroni, Kerber, Suarez Navarra, and Sharapova in the, the semifinals. So yep. by the end yep. of Stuttgart, you had two players who were primed to deliver a first-rate final. It was, it was I, I'll put it that way. I thought the first and the second set suffered a little bit from the fact that one of them was playing pretty well in each set. In the first set, Sigamon was just like, start, she was running out of the blocks and Mladenovic was just merely a bystander. And in the second set, Sigamon just started to miss on drop shots. Mladenovic served a hell of a lot better. Um, was much more, um, toned down the arrows, just looked a lot more solid. And the, the final set I thought was very, very entertaining. Um, main, maybe neither of them played as well as they did in the sets that they won, but they were very much at, at an equal level and at an equal footing. And, um, yeah, I thought the final set was, uh, you, you, you can't, beat those part those final twenty or twenty five minutes in terms of the, the drama stakes. I think that was um it was a very rousing finale to what was a, a pretty interesting week on on all accounts. What do you make of Mladenovic's rise in twenty seventeen? At the end of last year, we we like to do well who do you think is gonna break out in the following season? And I had I picked yeah. Caroline Garcia. I made the wrong Frenchie choice. <laughs> And here is Kiki Mladenovic just playing, like you said, a top ten player all year. Yeah, I, if I if if you had forced me to make uh, to go either with Garcia or Mladenovic, I probably would have gone with um, Garcia mainly simply for for looking at what they both did in in the Fed Cup Finals because mm-hmm. Caroline Garcia looked every every bit the part of someone who could really put the hammer down in the next year, and in, instead it's her former doubles partner. So. Yeah, I'm like I. There's something I also talked about this week. I had I had some trouble actually getting back into not just tennis but also into WTA tennis because I did winter sports for the first two months of the year and I barely got to see a ball. Which like, is why I, you were a little bit I absent was, I, for a while on tennis Twitter. Yeah, I was. I was. I'm so sorry. I'll try not to. Well, I can't. I can't guarantee to to that I won't repeat it because we rely on you for go. your gifts. Like you are the gift I'm, master. I know, I know, but I, I've I've seen that other people have picked up the baton and they're running with it, and I'm very happy for that. They're attempting um, to. I <laughs> know uh, they're doing well. They're doing well, but yeah, I I struggled a little bit, like in in March, to just to just to fall when I when I basically dove right when I dove right back into 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 tennis and also women's tennis particularly, and I just sort of was like I was like trying to get a hold of the whole field and the whole situation and i felt like i was swimming a little bit because there was just so much going on in terms of like a um like it's my it's my favorite disc- description for the for wta this year sort of pronounced state of flux mm-hmm. in terms of that there are things shifting but you can sort of feel where they're shifting towards and um the fact that Mladenovic hasn't had she hasn't had week in week out consistency i think that's um very few, very very few players have had that, but she's had several weeks where she's played really really well, and um, I don't think this the, the, the loss in this in this final is going to put that much of a of is is going to be that much of a problem for the next for the foreseeable future for her because I think she played a very good tournament and in, in the end she came up short by 
essentially by two or three points. So um, I'm 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 a little surprised. I'm not going to lie, but I'm curious to see where where things are going to go for her and how she's going to perform over the next couple of weeks, particularly on clay on clay and, gra and grass, because um, I remember talking to her last year where she said she likes the more particular surfaces. So she's she's happy to with these next couple of weeks with the surface in being clay and grass and I'm curious to see what she's going to do, maybe even at the French. Like, I was asked, do you think that Nadanovic being someone like a top 10 player this year could actually win the French? I was like, maybe, but I think she, I think she could, if, if the, if the chips fall away, I think she could make a good run. We are and, primed um, this year in particular to have something really strange happen at Roland Garros, don't you think? Like, I'm, I'm struggling yeah. to think who you could really point to as a favorite. Like, yes, Sharapova, I suppose. Halep is the one top player I would pick at this point. But we could have somebody ranked in the 30s, 40s, 50s win, conceivably. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm, like, I'm at that point in a way with, uh, I think both, both fields are fairly open for the French. Um, I mean, okay, Rafa's got, gotten his two decimas now and everything, but I think the men's side is still feels pretty open because, it's still a couple of weeks away, and the women's side as well. It feels like there there are a lot of things that um, could happen. There are a lot of things that are going to depend on the weather. If it's going to be as rainy as last year, I don't know if a Halep can hit through that. If it's uh -huh. going to be hot, if it's going to be warm, if it's going to play fast, who knows? Sigmund could make make a run to the quarters. I don't know. It's it's predict. It, it might be predictable in the fact that it's tough to predict it. Tell me, from your week in press in Stuttgart, what were some of the really funny yeah. moments? The funny moments, the funny moments was that we um, that we all ended up often have stating our name and our outlet of publication, and particularly uh, Courtney Nien for WTA Insider, who's talking to the players each week. Yes. So like, <laughs> WTA Insider and players were like, really, really, I know who you are. So that was pretty funny, and in general, it's just. Um, Huh. Funnier moments. I think. Well, tell me about the Radwanska being asked about Max Eisenbach. That I want to know. Ooh, it got. Ooh, it got real. It, it got chilly real quick that moment. <sighs> um. So yeah, Radwanska was obviously had another tough loss in what's already been a tough season for her. Went out in in her first in in her first match and came back up came up to uh, for press and was asked like what what do you think went your way what do you think did not go your way and came a bit unstuck for answers essentially like like i feel like she's coming unstuck for in terms of like what's going on this entire year where the results are just not sort of not not coming in so after that and you could already tell that this is that, that it's been a tough match and a tough loss for her and um she was obviously asked like the pre in the previous couple of days, someone that Max Eisenberg obviously made the statement that journey journeyman players like her and Wozniacki are obviously trying to keep Sharapova out of the French Open because the French Open are essentially like their last roll of the dice of <laughs> of winning a slam. Which, like, really, you'd say that the clay court slam is the last roll of the dice for Radwanska and Wozniacki yeah, really. players. Because They've done so clay at Roland Garros in the past couple of years. Like, ah, this is not hanging. This is just not hanging together at all. But besides that, she had the she perfect asked, response. What did she make of that? Because Max Eisenberg said that, and she was like, "So that sort of statement was not really." It was aspects like, 
Max Eisenberg. And Redwanska again replied, like, who's Max? Who is that guy? That is my comment. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah, that was, that was, I wouldn't call it like the funnier, one of the funnier moments because like it, it was a rough loss and it didn't come across as uh-huh. really funny. It was more, ooh, ouch, slight, a bit of a zinger. And, um, it was one of the more interesting moments. Let's put it that way. So I want to finish up with you with one question. It's something I've been, it's a selfish question because I've wanted to know for quite some time now. What's going on with WTA reactions? Because you oh. you took the tennis Twitter world by storm, and it slowed considerably over the last year. I know. That's because over the last year, I've started basically working in tennis full-time. And I get, like I work in terms of writing articles in German and this and that, and I need to sort of key in on what my beat is and what I'm doing and where I sort of... Um, yeah, what, what I end up, what, what I sort of have to do and like my time in order to, I feel like with WT actions, it's something that you need to, you need to have the time to do this and to deliver constant and on a permanent basis. And just, mm-hmm. you can't really say, I'm doing it one week and I'm not doing it the next week and I'm going to be at a tournament here this week and I'm going to be at another tournament next week. Um, when you're at a tournament, I mean, I don't need to tell you. Like I'm, I'm coming up short when it comes to the time, in order to do it properly. So, so real life has taken over, essentially. Life, yeah, life, yeah. Essentially, that's that's what it is. Life has sort of taken over, and um, yeah, I, it, it's pretty much that. It's not that. I, oh my god, I don't. I find the I, I don't think the WTA is fun anymore or not. And on the contrary, I do think the WTA is a lot of fun, but it's just in terms of the time that it consumed because you you do have to watch an entire match sometimes. Like uh-huh. I, I, I need to, I right now I cannot plan and schedule my entire calendar according to the matches that Alizé Cornet plays as much as I, <laughs> as much as I do love a, a disruptive French force, but it's, it's impossible. Well, Renee, thanks so much for being on the body serve. I'm sure listeners will love it and hopefully it'll be the first of many appearances. I hope so. I hope, I hope you guys, so I, I gave you a bit of an insight into a very interesting year in, in Stuttgart this year. Thanks again to Rene. Thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show. We hope the listeners enjoyed listening to what he had to say. Hit him up on Twitter at Renestance, R-E-N-E-S-T-A-N-C-E. Tell him how wonderful he is. And we look forward to having him back on the show in short time. Again, Another huge thing happened in men's tennis, and it was definitely the B-side of the tennis. It's the second time back-to-back episodes where Rafa's done something fucking amazing. Yes. And it's somewhat of an afterthought. It's it's below the fold in newspaper parlance. Rafa won, tying his own record of 10 titles at a single tournament, won Barcelona for the 10th time. And this time, he did have to beat a top 10 player, Dominic Team Rather handily in the final, 6-4-6-1. I was really surprised by that result. Not that Rafa won, but that after the first set, it seemed pretty easy going. Dominic lost his way, which unfortunately he's shown, he's shown a propensity to do in, you know, some big matches. That's something he'll have to work on. Mm-hmm. But Rafa's level in that final was, was top-notch. I think some of the things that we were talking about 
as being weaknesses for Rafa on hard courts, or at least I was talking about. I think you reprimanded me for that. <laughs> that I was I was kind of missing the the precision of these passing shots, uh, the the confidence on the forehand that he could hit it extremely deep and and know that it was going to bounce in in the corner. And we're seeing that on clay now. At this the magic about Rafa's game seems to be back, and it's no surprise that on clay the confidence has returned. His movement's just that much better. It's still good on other mm-hmm. services, but it's that much better and pronounced on clay. It's just and so when you natural. see him in the blink of an eye run around a backhand to blast an inside-out forehand winner, it's just okay. That's something that only Rafa does. Mm-hmm. I think a team is trying to make the case that he is one of the premier clay court players there is in the world. I think we knew this. Yeah, but I'm I think this is another step in the right direction for him. He got to the French semis last year and just got thoroughly spanked by Djokovic, but I think this is a different year because I don't see someone like Djokovic destroying him. We don't know what to expect from Djokovic well, this year. Right. That <laughs> that's part of the the issue. Elsewhere in men's tennis, Luca Pui won his second ATP title in Budapest, the first coming in Metz last year, and he beat, do you want to say it? Aljaj Bedane. Whenever we have to pronounce a player's name that we're not necessarily familiar with, we like to look it up. We failed with Mecic a few few episodes ago, and we were rightfully held to the flame for it. But you looked up Bedane's name, and what was really funny was one of these so-called translators or pronunciation software things on the internet gave us Al Jezbedin. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't speak Slovenian, but I have a feeling that that's wrong. You mean Al Jezbedin doesn't sound right? <laughs> Bedin. The fact that it was in robot voice gave me pause. <laughs> the people on the subway announcements sound better than that. But, Aljaj, why we want to talk about him is to do a little bit of a connecting the dots with our previous discussion on the on the last episode about politics and geopolitical considerations in tennis. Bedene has been having a really good stretch of play. He became the British number two in 2015. He had some injury. He dropped to British number four. And in the past several weeks, he's been on a streak of 16 matches won. He's won two challengers in that stretch, and then he goes to Budapest and gets to the final. And uh, unfortunately, couldn't play his best tennis in that final because he his fingers were feeling weird and he just was not physically at his level. But he's been playing extremely well, this goes without saying. He's building his ranking back up. And so here is Dan Evans deciding to take this opportunity to say too bad he can't play Davis Cup with like a thousand laughing emojis. What a piece of shit. Dan shit for brains Evans. I mean, with the face only a mother could love. <laughs> so I this is this is messy no doubt. This is drama, but like you said, this ties into something that we've been talking about 
last episode, is that politics is everywhere in sport, and when we're dealing with real human beings, politics comes up in these really ugly ways sometimes. So three years ago, when Bedene was applying to the ITF to play for Great Britain in Davis Cup, Dan Evans was at the forefront of the anti-Bedene movement, basically. At the time, he said, quote, So a guy is becoming British who has already played for his country doesn't sound quite right to me. And he followed that up with, quote, I mean, it's pretty clear he doesn't speak in an English accent, unquote. So you have, you've taken it from a problem with the rules to something extremely xenophobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a point of information here, a lot of British people don't speak in English accents. That includes Andy, Jamie, and Judy Murray. That's a Scottish accent. A lot of people have Indian accents, or Kenyan, or Argentinian. On Twitter, Dr. Scholl said that Dan Evans is the Ryan Harrison of British tennis. He truly is. This is Dan Evans, the Brexiter, who's made it very clear that he is xenophobic. He does the typical white dude racist move of saying, I like him as a person, he's a good guy and whatever. But one of his favorite phrases is, it seems a bit strange to me, which is just a passive aggressive way of saying, I'm not okay with this. Aljaj is from Slovenia. The issue for for Evans is that he played in several dead rubbers for Slovenia earlier in this decade. But he's been living in the UK since 2008. He became a citizen after about seven years. And for me, the, the ugly part here is that he applied to the ITF to play Davis Cup. And unfortunately, he was turned away because there's a rule preventing players from playing from two, for two different countries in their career. Even though he started his citizenship application even before this rule was in effect. It's such a stupid rule. We must have talked it, about it. <laughs> A couple of years ago, like people, people migrate. Yeah. This is a, a this is twenty seventeen of the world, right? And if it's good enough for the IOC, why isn't it good enough for Davis Cup? Right, like Daria Gavrilova is from Russia. She plays for Australia. The fact that she never played Fed Cup for Russia is is a non-starter for me. That's that's not an issue. Merlinati is a a great example. She ran for Jamaica for twenty odd years and then moved to Slovenia to re- Slovenia to represent them for 10 years in her 50s. Mm-hmm. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan Evans just had his best week on clay ever, by which I mean he won two matches, which was surprising. And he, I guess, is feeling himself. He's feeling confident that needs, he needs to tear somebody else down. Uh, a, a fellow citizen of the United Kingdom who he doesn't view as an equal, clearly. I think... In the course of American politics recently, when you threaten a mediocre person's meager grasp on privilege, ugliness happens. And this is what we're seeing now. Yep. And the comparison to Ryan Harrison is so apt. Mm-hmm. So big up to you, mm-hmm. Dr. Scholz. This brings us to the end of episode 79. Thanks again to Renee Denfeld for coming on the show. We appreciate your insight and our brush with internet fame. <laughs> he truly is one of the brightest lights of tennis twitter isn't it <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone for listening uh you can find us at the body serve on both instagram and twitter and 
I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's, and I'm Jonathan at SportsCribeCA. We're always in the mood for good reviews on iTunes or Podbean or whichever app you use. Till next time.